Thank you, Mary Alice. That was beautiful. Thank you so much. Thank you to Pastor Jason and all the musicians and singers. And it's good to have JT in town. He was on the piano just a few moments ago. Good to have JT in town this weekend. Turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John in chapter 5. We're going through the Gospel of John verse by verse. And uh, the last two weeks, we jumped ahead into chapter 19 and 20. Palm Sunday and Easter. But now we're back in chapter 5 and uh, hang with us in this study. Uh, the, this, this book promises that if you don't know the Lord, this book will bring you to the place to know the Lord personally. And if you do know the Lord, it will increase your faith. So that, that's the reason the subtitle, Journey of Faith. Um, and so uh, your faith will grow in the Lord from the study of this book. So uh, stay with us as we go through this entire gospel verse by verse. Now we come to uh, chapter 5. The setting is Jesus had healed a man who had been crippled for 38 years. Jesus healed him with a word. And uh, it happened to be on a Saturday. I say happened, uh, but of course that was in... God's divine plan. It was on a Sabbath, a Saturday. And the Jews, instead of rejoicing over this man's healing, the Jewish leaders were angry because he had, Jesus had broke the Sabbath by healing and this man had broke the Sabbath by carrying his mat. And so they were furious. And it is that setting now that Jesus makes one of his great discourses on his own deity and his equality with God the Father. Let's just pick a couple of verses here and then we'll go through most of the, or at least half of the rest of this chapter. Pick it up in verse 16. It says, And therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus. The verbs there are in the tense that indicates continual action. They continued to persecute Jesus. This, most scholars feel like this was the beginning of the official uh, organize persecution against Christ to put him to death. And so they begin to persecute Jesus and sought to slay him or kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. But Jesus answered them, My father worketh hitherto, and I work. He called God his father, my father. The Jews would have never done that. To them, this was blasphemy. This was obvious to them. He was claiming to be equal to God the Father. Um, they, if they used the term Father, which they didn't do much, if they did, they would, have, they would have said, Our Father, the Father of our nation, the Father of the Jewish people. But Jesus said, My Father, personally. And in uh, verse 18 says, Therefore the Jews sought to all the more to kill him, because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his father, making himself equal with God. They knew what he was claiming. He was claiming equality with God the Father. Pray with me, please. Father, thank you for our time together. The beautiful singing. May the words of Christ in this beautiful passage, may they sink into our hearts and souls, and may we once again see the glory of who you are, Lord Jesus, in Christ's name, amen, amen. 
true story. Karen and I love to walk in the woods. And uh, it, this has been a very busy time for us. And this past Thursday, I'd just come from the bank doing some business with the church at the bank. And, and Karen and I said, we've got a little bit of time. Let's take a walk in the woods. We hadn't walked in the woods in a long time. So we made our way over to one of the trails close to uh, Lake Grant Marina. And we were walking. It was a beautiful day. It was, uh, it was perfect. Sun, you know, when you're in the woods, the sun coming through the, the branches and so forth and uh, sprinkling the trail with sunlight. And, and uh, we were enjoying the creation, uh, that which God had made. And it was just beautiful. Everything was going well. We were going to turn around at 20 minutes, so we just walked 40 minutes, 20 out, 20 back. So it was about time to turn around. Everything was wonderful, and I was thinking to myself, what a perfect day when all of a sudden I step on a snake. I'm not kidding you. Right in the middle of the trail was a snake that I did, obviously I did not see. And uh, I could tell as soon as I stepped what had happened because it felt like a cushion and it rolled under my foot. And then I must have stepped in the middle of him because he wrapped both, both ends up around my leg. I am not kidding you. I jumped, I jumped so big trying to, and trying to shake that thing off my foot. I jumped and I, I jumped so big I pulled a muscle in my back. That's the truth. And it's still hurting right now. And this was on Thursday. And so I jumped about three times, real big, shaking my foot, shaking the snake off my foot. And Karen said, I also hollered while I was jumping. Every time. Every time I jumped, I hollered. I'm sure it was a, I'm sure it was a very manly holler, I'm sure. And, uh, so, uh, and so then I turned around to see what kind of snake it was. It wasn't a black snake. It was a snake, to me, that looked poisonous. And it was big. Karen took a picture of it from about a hundred yards away. Because when she saw that happen to me, she turned around and ran in the other direction. And uh, this is what that snake looks like. You can't tell in the picture the size of it. It's about three feet long. It's about as big around as my wrist. Maybe bigger. The head is as big as the palm of my hand. I mean, this is a pretty good sized snake that wrapped around my leg. When, uh, when my grandson, Kobe, who is the snake expert in our family, when he saw the picture, he, he said he couldn't see it well enough for sure, but it looks like a cotton mouth, which is poisonous, you know. Well, he did not bite me, thank the Lord. Uh, but uh, he did scare me a little. Well, maybe I should say he surprised me. No, scared's more right. He scared me. And, uh, and so I, and we threw some sticks at him trying to get him off the trail. He would not move. That was his trail. And so I had to go off into the, into the thickets and so forth to get around him. There's no telling what I was stepping on out there, coming around and uh, headed our way back. So uh, you might say, what's that story got to do with our passage today? Well, nothing. I just thought it'd be fun to tell it. No, really, there is a connection. Because as we were walking back to the car, 
it came to my mind a little one-verse parable that the prophet Amos tells in the book of Amos, chapter 5. The parable goes like this. There is a man who is being chased by a lion. Somehow he gets away from that lion. Then he's met by a bear. Somehow he gets away from the bear. He makes it to his home, gets inside his home. And the Jewish homes are made out of rock, stone, you know. He makes it safely home. And he, uh, he, he leans up against the wall at his home. He made it, got away from the lion, got away from the bear. He's now safe. And there in his own home, a snake bites him. Now the parable is about sin and judgment. The, the lion might be what some people might consider a big sin chasing him. Maybe, maybe it would be the sin of adultery. The, then the bear represented another big sin like uh, uh, some kind of uh, violence, murder, something like that. Now Amos is speaking to the people of Israel. He's warning them about sin and judgment. He's also speaking to us, warning us about sin and judgment. And so he got away from the lion, got away from the bear. And then in his own home, he was bitten by the snake. The, the, the people Jesus is going to be speaking to in this passage are the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes, and the chief priests. And they had gotten, they'd gotten away from those, some of those big sins, but in the safety of their own home, they had been bitten by the sin of self-righteousness, the sin of arrogance, the sin of pride, the sin of bitterness and resentment and anger. They were bitten by these sins. An unthankful heart. So that's how it applies to sin. How does it apply to judgment? Well, that's even more obvious. The man gets away from the, what you might consider big judgments like a lion and a bear. And when he thought he was safe, that's when the judgment hit in his own home. The Jewish people felt like they were safe from judgment because they were the children of Abraham. They were descendants of Abraham. They believed the Old Testament. So surely they would not fall into judgment. But the Lord Jesus has a strong warning to them. You know, it's possible that you and I can avoid those big sins maybe. But be bitten by the sins of anger and lust and pride and selfishness. And self-righteousness and arrogance. God forbid. So Jesus is going to speak to these religious leaders in what is a long, a long uh, discourse. So we're going to cut it in half. So we're just going to take verses 19 through 29 and then we'll cover the rest of it next week. This passage is where Christ himself by his own personal testimony declares his deity 
his oneness with God the Father. It is one of the greatest passages on Christology in all the Bible. In a sense, the whole New Testament is Christology. Christology means, well, theology means the science of God. Theo is from the Latin, it means God. Ology means science. Theology, the science of God. Christology is the science, the study, the understanding of Christ and who he is and uh, his equality with Father and his deity. And this is one of those great passages on that truth. Sometimes you may hear a liberal say, Jesus never claimed to be God or equal with God. Nothing could be further from the truth. Here is a long passage where he emphasizes it strongly. If you look at your screen for a moment, I'll give you a quick outline of what we're going to look at. And we're just going to throw them up here quickly. We'll be studying them verse by verse. Here Jesus makes seven claims to equality with God the Father. He is equal with the Father in His person. Equal to the Father in His works. Equal to the Father in His power and sovereignty. Equal to the Father in His judgment. Equal to the Father uh, in His honor. And also... As the source of life, he is equal to the Father, and he is equal to the Father in resurrection. So with that said, let's go back now to verse 19. This is when Jesus begins to speak to them after they decided even, strong, even in a stronger way they want to kill him. Because what he is saying is blasphemy. He claims God is his personal father. And therefore putting himself equal with God. As it says the last part of verse 18. Making himself equal with God. But instead of denying it. Jesus elaborates on it. Look at verse 19. And then answered Jesus. And said unto them. Verily, verily. Which means truly, truly. Or listen to this. I'm going to say something of profound importance. Verily, verily. I say unto you. The son can do nothing of himself. But what he sees the Father do for what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. Jesus is saying he is in complete unity with the Father. What he does, the Father's doing. And they do it together in complete unison. Now that's important because they're accusing him of breaking the Sabbath and in doing so, committing blasphemy by saying God was his father and, and breaking the law. Well, Jesus is saying, if I'm breaking the law, God the Father's breaking the law too because whatever I do, he does. And whatever he does, I do. We do it together in perfect unity, in perfect unison. Jesus never broke the law as they accused him of. Uh, the, the law says to keep the Sabbath and keep it holy Jesus always did that, but what the, the rules he broke were the rules of mankind surrounding the, uh, the Sabbath day, surrounding the law of God. He broke intentionally, and often he broke the laws of man. That was the oral law of the uh, Jews of that day. So he said, if I'm breaking the law, the Father's breaking the law too, because whatever he does, I do, and what I do, he does. Verse 20, for the Father loveth the Son 
and showeth him all things that he doeth, and he will show him greater works than these that thou that uh, ye may marvel. Take that first phrase again. The Father loveth the Son. You've heard me say and heard other people say there are two Greek words that are used in the New Testament for love. One is agape, which is the strongest of the two. And it's, it's, usually, it's used only of God and or God's people. It is a love that always does what's best for the one upon whom it is focused. Agape love. It's beautiful. The other word for love is phileo. It can be used of friendship. Uh, uh, two people who are best friends. It's used of uh, mother and daughter, father, son, parents, children, relationship, brothers and sisters, relationship, loving each other. It means a fondness of, a joy to be with, and so forth. The word used here is phileo. Nearly always when it is said the father loved the son or the son loved the father, nearly always it is agape. But here it's phileo. Jesus is speaking of a very intimate kind of love. A fondness of the father is my best friend. He's, he's fond of me. And I'm fond of him. And we, we do this together. There is, a, there is an emotion tied to it. There is affection tied to it. It's a beautiful thing. Most of the time when God speaks about loving us, it's agape. Which is wonderful because that means he's always doing what's best for us. But in chapter 16 of John, Jesus is going to say, The Father loves you, speaking to his followers, us. And he uses the word phileo as well. God the Father is fond of you. Do you know? He knows all about you. Not only does he love you with an agape love, he's fond of you. Likes to be with you. Takes delight in you. Takes pleasure in you. That's a pretty glorious truth, isn't it? So here he says, The Father loves the Son and shows him all things. He holds back nothing, all things. And then he, that last phrase says, he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. So he's going to do something greater than the miracles he's already done. He's already performed many miracles at this point in his ministry. Uh, John's uh, has only recorded uh, two of them, but, uh, or three of them. And, uh, but he's, he has performed many. But he's going to do something to make even the religious leaders marvel. Be, a, be astonished is that word. And look at verse 21. For as the Father raiseth up the dead and quickeneth them, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. Jesus can raise the dead as surely as the Father can raise the dead. Because again, he is equal with God the Father. So uh, he raised up the dead. Quickeneth simply means to make alive. And the Son is going to quicken uh, and call to life people. That's, I think, the miracle that he's talking about that will make them be astonished. Three times in the Old Testament, God raised the dead. Three times in the New Testament, Jesus raised the dead. Again, showing his equality 
with God the Father. Now these Jews believed the Old Testament, every jot and tittle. They, le- they believed every part. They believed those miracles of God raising the dead in the Old Testament. Now Jesus is going to do it right in front of them. And it will make them astonished. I hope some of them will be saved. But most of them will still reject him. Look back at your screen for a moment. Let me show you the three, the three places and times in which Jesus raised the dead. Jesus raised the dead in the New Testament. First of all, he raised the son of a widow in, a, in about two months. Now, what I mean by two months is two months from when this happens. Jesus said, I'm going to perform miracles you haven't seen yet that will make you be astonished. And uh, so the first one happened two months later. And then the second miracle happened six months later, the raising of Jairus' daughter from the dead. And then 18 months later, he raises Lazarus from the dead. And, uh, and, and of course, so there's the three. And then to put an exclamation point at the end of those three, he raised himself from the dead eight days after he raised Lazarus. Remember, Jesus said... Uh, no man taketh my life from me. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it up again. And so Jesus raised the dead so that they would be astonished. And nevertheless, they, uh, uh, they were, still did not receive him as Messiah and Savior. Look at verse 23. Verse 22. For the Father... Judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son. One of the great prerogatives that the Jews placed on God was the giving of life and the judgment. Jesus is saying, I'm the one that's going to judge you in the last day. The one who's standing in front of you right now. The one you're accusing of blasphemy. And so all judgment is committed unto him. Verse 23, that all men should honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son honoreth not the Father which hath sent him. Now think about it. Jesus is turning the table on them. They're accusing him of blasphemy and disobeying the law. Now Jesus turns it around and says... The Father and the Son are equal in the area of honor. If you don't honor the Son, you can't honor the Father. So he's saying to them, in effect, and I'm sure they understood this because they're standing there kind of dumbfounded by everything Jesus is saying. They don't interrupt him, but they're just, they can't believe their ears. Jesus is saying, you're the one committing blasphemy because you're rejecting God's Son. God the Son. They gave him no honor. Instead, they gave him ridicule and persecution and eventually a cross. So you can't honor the Father without honoring the Son. If you're wrong about the Son, you can never honor God. If you believe that Jesus was just a good man, you can never honor God. If you believe Jesus was not equal to God the Father, you can never honor the Father. You have to know who Jesus is and honor Him as God the Son, equal with God the Father. Now, 
The Holy Spirit is not spoken of in this passage. Over in chapter 14 and 16, Jesus is going to speak about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is equal to God the Father and God the Son as well. But he's not mentioned here because Jesus is making this discourse to a certain people. And he's showing them his deity. Now we come to verse 24, which is one of the key verses in this passage. Look at it. Verily, verily, again, truly, truly, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, that is judgment, but is passed from death unto life. Here's one of those great gospel verses. <laughs> Jesus says, if you hear my word and believe on him that sent me, you already have. Look, look at it. Uh, you have already everlasting life. It's already yours. You have already passed from death. Before we're saved, we're all dead in our trespasses and sins, the Bible says. We're spiritually dead. Though we are physically alive, we're spiritually dead until we're born again. That is quickened and made alive in Christ. And then we have passed from death unto life. Now, that's interesting that verse 24 says that, um, that hear the word and believe on him that sent me. Ninety-eight times in the gospel of John, the word believe is used. Most every time it's in relation to salvation, the receiving of eternal life. We believe on the Lord Jesus. And every time but here, it is believing on the Lord Jesus. Here it says we believe on the one who sent him, which is the Father. So who are we to believe on, the Father or the Son? Well, of course, Jesus' whole point here in this first section is he and the Father are equal. Jesus would say later, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. They are one. Over in chapter 12 in verse 44 it says, He that believeth on me, believeth not on me. Well, wow, that doesn't make sense, does it? The thought is, he doesn't believe only on me. Because he, then the rest of the verse says, He that believeth on me, believeth not on me but on the one who sent me. So when you believe on the Lord Jesus, you're believing on the Father too, whether you know it or not, because they're one and the same. Now, they're different persons, but they're one the same in equality. And so we have this great key verse. One other key verse. Jump ahead for just a moment over to verse 34. He says, But I receive not testimony from men, but these things I say that ye might be saved. All of the arrogance and self-righteousness and ridicule that, the, that this religi religious rulers have heaped upon Christ, yet he still wants them to be saved. And so right in the middle of this discourse, he gives verse 24, this gospel message. And if you'll trust Christ... And in so doing, you trust the Father, then you will have no condemnation, no judgment for your sin because Jesus took our judgment upon himself on the cross. Well, move on. Verse 
25. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. Wow. Jesus is saying he can call the dead to life. Now, he's going to do that in the last days. He's going to mention that in a moment. But here he's referring to what he can do in the here and now. He can call people, that is, in his earthly ministry, he did. He can do it now, too, for that matter. But he called people who were dead back to life. As we saw a few moments ago, the three that he did, that they might marvel. But there's another thought here because this is coming right out of verse 20, 24. Notice the last part of verse 24 again is passed from death unto life. And then he talks about calling the dead and they will hear his voice and they shall live. He's also talking about a spiritual uh, birth. He's talking about Jesus calling people to himself and giving them life. They'll hear his voice. If you will hear his voice, believe him. This word is his voice, just like my word is my voice. Believe that and receive that. And uh, he calls people back, he calls people to life. Then look at verse 26. For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself. So life is in him. He's the source of life. He was with the Father from the beginning, and he was God from the beginning, equal to God the Father from the beginning. But in his incarnation, he never laid aside his deity, nor his glory, nor his omnipotence. He never laid aside his attributes of deity. But what he did is he, he laid aside his independence so that now he and the Father do everything together and as the Father gives life, so the Son is the source of life as well. For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath even as given to the Son to have life in himself. And hath given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Now, hearing that phrase, son of man, doesn't mean a whole lot to us, but it would have had a tremendous impact on the Jews of that day. The Jews knew the Old Testament very well. And one of the great passages that speaks of a coming Messiah calls him the son of man in Daniel chapter 7. All of these scribes would have known it. Probably the common people that happened to be there listening to this would have known it. Uh, because it was one of those great passages that the Jews uh, talked about all the time. Where the, the Messiah would be called the Son of Man. So when Jesus says he was the Son of Man, they knew he was claiming to be the long-awaited Messiah. And he would be the one to execute judgment. And then he says in verse 28, Marvel not at this. Don't marvel at the fact that I can raise the dead physically. I'm going to do that. So you'll marvel. So you'll be astonished. And don't marvel that I can call the spiritually dead people to life right now. Don't marvel at that because, look what he says. 
Verse 28, Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in the which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. So Jesus said, don't marvel that I'm going to raise three people from the dead because the time is coming in the future when I will be the one who will who will speak the word and all of the people who have died in all the history of mankind is going to come forth out of the graves at the word of Christ. Wow, can you imagine what those religious leaders thought now? They thought he was blaspheming because he used the term my father. Now he's saying, I'm the one who's going to call forth people in the resurrection. That was another prerogative that the Jews held only for God, and rightfully so. Only God can raise the dead. So Jesus uh, is confirming, of course, that he is God. <clears throat> now, let's think about this judgment for a moment. I want us to think about that phrase, they that have done good to the resurrection of life. If we only had this verse, and they which have done evil, if we only had this verse, it would sound as though that uh, the people who are being raised in the resurrection of life are doing so because they're good. <clears throat> That's not what it's saying. It's not saying it's because they're good. But, uh, but they are good. God has made them good. And, uh, and then the evil, they're being condemned be because of their evil, which is certainly true. So some people would look at this and maybe think this teaches a works salvation. Well, remember right here in the middle of this, of this discourse, this teaching of Jesus, <clears throat> verse 24 is here that says, You believe. And if you believe, then you have everlasting life. <clears throat> Again, that word believe is used 98 times. Just in the book of John. Nearly every time it's used, it's speaking of believing on the Lord Jesus. And that belief is the exclusive condition of receiving eternal life, salvation, a home in heaven, forgiveness of sin, believing on the Lord Jesus. One rule of interpretation is always you never interpret the obvious by the obscure. But you always interpret the obscure by the obvious. Now it is obvious, abundantly clear in the Bible and in the book of John that the way to salvation is belief, faith, in Christ, in Christ alone. So here, he's describing the people, not saying it's a condition. I think we have time. Look over, just look over another page to, to chapter 6 for a second. T chapter 6 and verse 27. Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for that which endureth unto eternal life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you, for him hath God the Father sealed. Then said they unto him, 
What shall we do that we might work the works of God? Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God, that you believe on him whom he hath sent. That's the works. That's the one work. It's not really a work. Paul will distinguish the fact that it's not actually a work. That's the one thing we do to, in, to receive eternal life. Believe on the Lord Jesus. So the people who have believed, their lives are... And by the way, the, Greek, the verses here in the Greek indicate continual action. So the people in the, uh, who are raised in that first resurrection, they are people whose lives are basically good. It doesn't mean they won't do bad things, but their lives are basically good. And those who are raised to, uh, in the resurrection of damnation, their deeds are evil. If you're lost, God says, even your righteousness, the best you can do is like filthy rags. So let's think now about these two resurrections. Look back at your screen and when they'll come and so forth. So here, now we have the two resurrections of verse 28 and 29. The first one is the resurrection of life, also called the resurrection or the first resurrection in Revelation 20. It occurs in two stages. This is the resurrection of life for the believers, for people who are saved. It occurs in two stages. Stage one, at the rapture of the church. And the rapture could take place at any minute. There's no signs or nothing that has to be fulfilled before Christ comes in the rapture. It could happen before this service is over. And, uh, and 1 Corinthians there says it's going to happen in the twinkling of an eye. As quickly as you can blink your eye. Really, twinkling is, is, uh, takes less time than a blink. Uh, Western Electric said that a twinkling of an eye the twinkling of an eye lasts 11 one-hundredths of a second. <laughs> that quick, we're going to be changed, and the people are going to be resurrected. And verse, uh, chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians talks about him coming back in, uh, that's supposed to be verse, chapter 4, I'm sorry, I just put the wrong, it's chapter 4, verses 18 through 21. I just happened to catch my mistake up there. So, uh, uh, so that happens at the rapture of the church. But then, stage two takes place at the end of the tribulation. There's going to be a lot of people get saved during the tribulation. Those who had never heard the gospel, those who had never heard it in a, in a way they could understand it. There's going to be a revival among the Jewish people and Gentiles during the tribulation period. And some, many of them will be put to death for their faith. And they will be resurrected at the end of the tribulation when Jesus comes back in his glory in his second coming. And so that's the two stages of, of uh, the resurrection of life. Now, the second resurrection is the resurrection of condemnation. Now, the King James says damnation. But uh, the two words both come from the same Greek word. Actually, in the Greek, it's the same. And it, even in the King James, that exact Greek word is most of the time translated condemnation. And only a couple of times damnation. And this is one of those couple of times. So it's the resurrection of condemnation, of judgment. And that occurs at the end of the millennial kingdom. Revelation 20. 
That's when they're going to stand before the great white throne and he that sat upon the throne will be so glorious and awesome they'll try to hide themselves but they can find nowhere to hide. Everybody there will be lost. The books will be open proving their sin. The book of life is there proving they never received Christ and everybody there will be cast into the lake of fire forever and ever and ever. And the one sitting on that throne we know is Jesus because here Jesus said all judgment was given unto him. Wow. What a passage of scripture. You do not want to be in that second resurrection. You want to be in that first resurrection. You want to be sure you've done what verse 24 says. Heard the word. Believed on him that, uh, that uh, sent Jesus. You do that by believing on Jesus. And be sure you have everlasting life. Now I'm going to show a little clip again. This one's only about two and a half minutes. I want to preface it by saying this. I think this Gospel of John that I'm using does a very good job. A few times it makes Jesus look a, too, a little too intense. Uh, intense is not the right word. He, he looks a little too aggravated. This is one of those places. Jesus has a right to have righteous indignation. But Jesus was never frustrated and aggravated like a human gets. And so that's, I think, we see a little too much of that in this. But nevertheless, it helps us to remember that this really took place just like that God said it did. So here's a little glimpse. Maybe it looks something like this. Jesus answered them, My Father is always working. And I too must work. This saying made the Jewish authorities all the more determined to kill him. Not only had he broken the Sabbath law, but he had said that God was his own father, and in this way had made himself equal with God. So Jesus answered them, I tell you the truth. The son can do nothing on his own. He does only what he sees his father doing, what the father does. The Son also does, for the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. He will show him even greater things to do than this, and you will all be amazed! Just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, in the same way the Son gives life to those he wants to, nor does the Father himself judge anyone. He has given his Son the full right to judge, so that all will honor the Son in the same way as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. I am telling you the truth. Those who hear my words and believe in him who sent me have eternal life. They will not be judged, but have already passed from death to life. I am telling you the truth. The time is coming. The time has already come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear it will come to life just as the Father is himself the source of life. In the same way, he has made his Son to be the source of life. And he has given the Son the right to judge because he is the Son of Man. Do not be surprised at this. The time is coming when all the dead will hear his voice and come out of their graves. Those who have done good will rise and live. And those who have done evil will rise. 
and be condemned. What a scene that was. Be sure you've trusted Christ as Savior. The Bible says all of us have sinned, every one of us, and come short of the glory of God. We may have avoided some big sins out there, like a lion and a bear, but we've all been bitten by sin. Whatever that sin may be, we're all guilty and need forgiveness. Be sure you've done what Jesus said. Put your faith in Him. Hear His Word. Trust Him. And in so doing, you're trusting the Father as well.